Um, the passage is Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I have no son. Our is a really cutting statement that a friend who's very close to me heard once. I have no son. And even though this friend knew that he deserved these words at some level because he said something terrible to his dad, those words cut deeply because it was in the backdrop of a whole life of challenges with his father and deep pains. And although there were high points, it was surrounded with many other deep wounds. And the sad reality is that this guy's father was a hundred times worse. And so there is a perpetual cycle of a fatherhood that was broken, that was not as it ought to be. And sadly, this is not rare. As you, many of you know, this is an epidemic in our culture. This is not an isolated event. Let me share a couple of stats with you real quick. Students who are from the grade, grades of first through 12th grade, 39% of them live in homes absent of their biological fathers. 39%. And currently, and this is deeply saddening, 55% of all black children, 31% of Hispanic children, and 20% of all white children are living in single parent homes. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children, children who show some behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Are you seeing this, this trend? Fatherless homes equal bad. There are many different arguments regarding um, Social scientists, they argue about everything, but one of the few things that they all agree, which is very rare, it's almost miraculous, is that when a father is not in the home, a healthy father, lives pay huge dividends. Lives are affected negatively. And so this evening, we're going to cover what, really, what does the Bible have to say for this epidemic? How does the Bible answer this prominent epidemic that many of us in this room right now currently have have felt the effects, including me. And so this is the main point of the passage we're going to be unpacking, because God does have something to say about this, something very beautiful and deep. And that's this. God the Father delighted to predestine us for adoption. God the Father delighted to predestine us for adoption. One prominent writer, theologian, J.I. Packer that some of you may be familiar with said this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. This is uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. For me, this truth that God had adopted me was one of the most life-transformative messages um, I really had a rough relationship with my dad growing up, 
and I was deeply wounded and extremely insecure. And there were really, really good times, but a lot of those good times were drowned, drowned out by the bad. Um, and by, the, by God's grace, when I was about 20 years old, God encountered me as a father through Romans chapter 8, and it transformed everything. And it healed me deeply, and I'm still in healing, but God miraculously transformed me. And in the last 10 years, God has miraculously transformed my father, and our relationship is better than ever. Well, I cannot guarantee that same kind of reconciliation for all of us. I can guarantee that God can be that kind of father, the greatest father you could ever have and ever dream. And I'm excited for him to reveal himself in this message. And so um, let's pray together. Father, I, I know that this message is going to conjure up pain for many of us. For the statistics that I read earlier, we are not immune to them. Those aren't just numbers on a page. Those, those affect us, and we, many of us are affected still because of fathers. And I, I pray that you would reveal yourself as the greatest dad. Reveal yourself to those who, are, who feel fatherless, who feel abandoned, who feel like orphans, that you would rescue them and adopt them even now. And so would you move and speak? Speak through me, Lord. We want to hear from you. I pray your word would come forth with power and clarity, and I pray that every heart would be softened and be able to receive. We want to hear from you. We don't need to hear from a man. And so would you move and have your way? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. So before we dig into what God has to say to us, I want to um, show you, explain to you how I'm going to organize this message this is, I'm going to actually use the four questions that many of you guys are going to learn when we roll out our DNA groups next month. And so this, these four questions have, have been for me the greatest way to read the Bible, the most simplest, profound way to read the Bible I've ever experienced. And these are the four questions. Every time you read your Bible, ask yourself these questions. What does it say about God? Who's God? Number two, what has he done? Number three, who are we in light of what he's done? And number four, how should we now live? And so I'm going to organize this message in that way, and part of the, why I'm doing that is because I hope that at our church, our sermons are not only going to feed you and challenge you and, and point to Christ, but also it will be a way to continue to train us all how to read our Bibles better so that we can encounter Jesus on the daily and not just wait for the specialists to preach and teach you on Sunday. So number one, who is God? Who is God? Well, according to, a, according to this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, God is a father. Oh, it'll be up there eventually. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, in Ephesians 1, 3, that we see that God is a father. He's a father of Jesus. Before God created anything, he actually was a father. He was the father of the son. Before Jesus came, the son came as Jesus incarnate on the earth. God was actually a father. And so our very idea that of, of fathers actually came from God himself. It's not something that came after. God was always a father. He is the first father. And every single father who's ever walked this earth is just a dim reflection of God the father. Some do it better. Some do it 
worse, but every single person falls short at some level in pointing to God, the original Father. But it, it's important to say that first and foremost, God is a Father. And we're going to get more into how God stacks up against earthly fathers. Number two, what has he done? What has he done? Um, I'm going to do a quick overview of this chapter. For the next three weeks, we're going to be going over chapter one. Next week, it's going to be Ross, and then I'm going to preach again in three, two weeks. This week, we're covering that God adopts us. Num next week, we're going to show that God rescues us through Jesus' blood. And in three weeks, God keeps us and sanctifies us and seals us by the Spirit. And this is beautiful progression from the before the time began, before the creation of the earth, all the way down to when Jesus comes back and makes all things new at the end, last day. It's a beautiful picture we're going to be walking through. God has done this. But this week, we're going to focus on the Father delighting to predestine to adopt us. Verses 4 and 5 in Ephesians 1, if you could read. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We're going to look at both these verses together because this, th these two words, these two verbs, chose and predestined, they're actually linked. They, they work together. Predestined actually kind of expands what choosing means. But, you know, oftentimes we use words frequently in the church and we forget to even think what do they mean. What, what does the word chose mean and predestined? Let me give you two quick definitions. Chose to select freely after consideration. Okay, not, not super profound, but to select freely after consideration. Predestined, deciding upon something beforehand. Now, when I, dis when I discovered that I'm going to have to preach from this text, I got a little scared because we just started this church, and I'm going to, from one of our first sermons, I'm going to talk about predestination. Okay? So if you've been around at any point, you know that predestination is not like the most unified doctrine in our churches. Okay? Many people fight about it, and so I had some trepidation, I want to be honest with you. But then it reminded me why we do what we do with preaching. We preach the Bible because it forces us to cover things that we would normally not do because we believe God wants us to know these things. And just to be honest, I would have avoided this for some time as I built more credibility with my people and as we grow in the Bible together and then maybe hit this in maybe a couple months or a year. But God wants us to talk about it right now from one of the first days. And so let me say this. There are some very godly, well-meaning people who make some leaps in their logic. They claim that God chose us after he looked down and saw that he's, we are going to choose him. And I love these people. And I respect these people. But I think they're misunderstanding this text and they're mis misunderstanding some texts in Romans. I think they take away the beauty and the force of this, of this passage See, predestination means that God chooses people beforehand, pre. He, he's not responding. I mean, the logic of that to say, I chose you because you chose me, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. And, and I don't want to be harsh for those who take that position, if any of you guys take that position, but it takes away the beauty and the power of God saying, I chose you. I chose you first, before the foundations of the earth, before you could do anything, good or bad, I wanted you, and I chose you. 
See, when you then say, no, no, he only chose us because he knew that we're going to choose him, then it totally strips us from this beauty of being, rece- being chosen and loved before we could do anything. There's been endless de- debate about this, but the beauty of this passage, for me at least, is that the emphasis is not trying to create walls of who is in and who is out and trying to say who's smart and who's dumb and who's elite and who's not, but it's emphasizing this, this security and this worship. If you look at this passage, Paul's not trying to create a fight. He's not trying to start a debate. He's just worshiping God. See, predestination in this passage is supposed to give us, in this hard, broken world, security. Security that even though we sin, even though we stumble, God says, I got you. I got you. I picked you. I knew you were going to do that. I still got you. So I just want to guard ourselves from letting these truths immediately go to debates and cause division. But remember that the intent of this passage, if you look at the context, is to encourage believers that God wanted you. God chose you before you could do anything. Now the question arises: why did he choose us and predestine us? What did he, what did he do that for? And, that, and obviously it says right here that he did it for adoption. Now in the first century Roman context, adoption was was an amazing, powerful thing. The most most famous adoption was Julius Caesar adopting Octavius. And the way adoption worked is that when, let's say I'm Julius, Octavius now receives all my rights, my inheritance, he receives my last name, he forsakes his previous family, and now he's mine. And he's treated like a blood child. He's treated as if he's my very own. Now think about the nature of adoption. When you adopt, do you know what you're getting? Usually, right? You usually know a great deal, especially nowadays. You know a great deal. You know their background. You know, um, you know their ethnicity. You know their gender. You know all kinds of things about this child before you choose them. Now, Think, on the other side, biological children. You have no idea. In fact, my firstborn, we were very surprised. And I'm so grateful that God surprised us because we probably would have waited for like 10 years, the way, I, the way my mind was. But biological, you're not sure what you're going to get. Adoption, you know exactly what you're getting for the most part. You can even know history. You know that what they're going to be prone to, maybe addictions. You may even know that they have um, physical maladies and issues that you're going to have to care for for the rest of your life. And so adoption, in many ways, is more purposeful and informed than just having biological children. And the other thing, in our culture too, the moment you adopt a child, that kid is one of yours. So we, Joanna and I are hoping to adopt in the near future. When we adopt, that child is going to take the name Choi, and I will treat and esteem that child as if it's my very own. And so we understand that's kind of how adoption works. Now here's the question that is begged. How did God do this? How did it, what manner did he do this? Look at verse 5 again. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, he made this happen. And Ross is going to get over that more next week. 
in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, the word pleasure is translated like that, and if you have an ESV, it's going to say purpose. It's because the translators are trying to get, give us this idea, this nuance of what it means that God, God delighted to do this. It wasn't just this stoic, non-emotional, okay, I choose you guys. But there was a delight there. Let's look at a couple other translations. The NLT says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. They should be coming up soon. He predestined us. This is uh, what the NASB says. He predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And the CSB says according to the good pleasure of his will. Are you, are you seeing the nuances of this? This isn't a cold heart, oh yeah, I choose you. Because I have to. No, it's a, I love you. I want you. I like you. I delight in you. I desire you. He's not begrudgingly do, doing this. And also look at verse 4 in chapter 1. What, what does he say in the very end? He does it in love. He predestines it. In love. We must separate predestination and this idea of election from a very cold, calculating God, but one who's passionate about these people, full of love and affection. It's not just this blind dart throwing or pulling flowers. He loves me, he loves me. Should I choose them? Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? No, there's a deep affection and love for the people that he seeks after. And this is so encouraging for us because your parents may have not planned you, may not have wanted you, but God did. God delighted to have you. You were no mistake for him. But here's another question that comes easily is why did God choose us? Why? Why did he choose us? Why did he choose me? I remember when I first started studying, this, this was the thing that caused me to go insane. I'd pace in my room and say, God, why? Why me? It doesn't make sense. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, if you want to flip to that really quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Again, there's Bibles in front of you. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and it's going to actually be up on the screen. God is speaking. Uh, Moses is actually speaking on behalf of God, and he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. No, notice the intimacy in that, that kind of statement. The Lord did not set his affections on you and chose you, cho choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. We'll stop there. You see that? He didn't say... I loved you because you guys were so strong and your military was so great and you guys were so moral. No, no, he said, I loved you because I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. Now, that's crazy to me. That doesn't make sense. Because we don't like that. For example, if I were to tell my wife, Joanna, honey, I love you because I love you, she probably wouldn't like that. Because usually... We say, I love you because something. 
because you're beautiful, because you're lovely, because you're astounding, because you're, you're so tall or something like, right? I love you because of something. It's extremely unnerving if someone just says, I love you, just because I love you. See, because this fear is dictated on how fickle that person is. If, if the person says, I love you because I decided to love you, the question then comes to, to, to mind is, what kind of person are you? Are you someone who just says that? One day I love you and the next day you don't? And fickle? See, because if I say that to Joanna, she knows, she's known me long enough, seven years married, she knows that I can change the whim. I'll be like, honey, let's do this. And then she just has to wait because a few days later I'm like, honey, let's do this, right? And so I'm not a reliable person to say I love you because I decided to love you because I can be fickle. And the other thing that is so crazy is because and challenging is if I said I love you because you are beautiful, what happens if the day she gets in a car accident and she doesn't look physically beautiful? Then my love for her is immediately suspect. See, and, and that's the really scary thing is when we ever give a reason, a qualification why we love someone, oh man, I love you because we're, you're so funny. That may really encourage the jokester, but you're also unintentionally putting a giant boulder on their back because now they're thinking, well, I got to keep the jokes up. I got to be the funny man because if I'm not funny, you won't like me. Or, thank you, Jonathan, for leading us in a song. And he's going to lead us more. Jonathan's a professional musician. Jonathan, I love you because your music's so great. And he could be like, man, thanks for that. And then think to himself, dang, I'm, I just ran out of music. <laughs> it's gone dry. What am I going to do? And so what is so unnerving about God's love is that he says he loves us because he decides to. And what is God's character like? Is he the one who's fickle and his love goes up and down? No, 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 no. His love is unchangeable. He never changes. He's constant. And so you have the being who you can trust, the only being that you can truly trust in this universe, saying, I chose you because I decided to. We can take, our we can take that to the bank. That, that is, at the same time, freeing and stripping. Let me explain that. It's freeing because now we have someone who loves us just because they love us. Not because of any strings attached, not because we perform or because we're moral or we're good or we do the right thing, but because he loves us. And then at the same time, it's stripping because all of us want something to hang our hat on. Well, because I'm great or because I'm good looking or because I'm smart. And in our culture of a performance-driven culture, we want to, to, to feel good about ourselves because something we do. And that's why the gospel is so unnerving and yet so freeing at the same time because he says, I love you radically and I die for you just because I love you. And that will never change. And that's why works righteousness constantly comes back in the church because we want to say, God, well, God, it's because I did this or because I prayed a prayer or because I got baptized or because I do good things or because I'm a good church member. No, 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 because I love you. And until we really grasp that, we will never truly grasp the gospel. See, the question that many of us ask throughout our lives, either subconsciously or consciously, is, is, is questions like this. Am I good enough? Many men ask this. Many men are boys inside longing, longing for a father to tell them, I'm good enough. I'm enough. 
wandering around the world, trying to do different things, proving to their father who's either alive or dead or absent that they're good enough, that they're worthy enough. And many women grow up their whole life saying, am I lovely enough? Am I pretty enough? Do you accept me? And in the gospel, you don't have to be enough anymore. You don't have to be enough anymore. You don't have to be lovely enough anymore. As you are, he chose you. Remember, it was before the foundations of the world he chose you, not after you were enough. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus was enough for us, and now we are in Christ, so then we are now enough. Number three, who are we now in light of God's adopting us? Have you guys heard people say, we're all God's children? We're all God's children. Is that true? Well, it is true in the sense that everybody is created by God, and he is a creator, and we're made in his image. And so in one sense, he's like the father of all of us. But when we read the Bible carefully, we see that not everyone is actually his adopted children. There are some who are and some who aren't, are not. And let me explain this more by showing five results of adoption. Okay, five res results of adoption, of being adopted. First result of our adoption, inheritance. It's important to notice that when you look at the passage in your Bible, it says adopted as sons. Now, in our gender pluralistic society, that comes across offensive but there's a reason why the text says sons. Because remember, in the first century context, and even before, the only person who could really receive inheritance of anything was the son. And so while it is completely legitimate for us to call any of our sisters daughters of the king, we don't want to forget the context that, girls, you are sons of God. Just like I'm the bride of Christ, which is weird. Even though I'm a dude, I'm the bride of Christ. Because these analogies get at something. And when you strip the gender away and just merely just say something neutral, you miss the context of what the Bible is trying to say. So if you are a son, if you're adopted as a son, you are now eligible for inheritance. And if you go to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 shows us, verse 7, and eight, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a messianic psalm, which means this is about Jesus. And so the reality is Jesus is going to inherit the entire world. And so if we are now sons and co-heirs with Christ, Who's going to inherit the whole world? We are. The sons of God. All of us who are putting our trust and hope in Christ. Number two, the second result of being adopted is this, that we are holy and blameless. Verse four. He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. If he chose us to be holy and blameless in the sight, the opposite must have been true before he chose us, right? If he chose us to be holy and blameless, that means that beforehand we were not holy and blameless. We were the opposite. We were unholy and blameworthy. But according to this passage, in heaven's perspective, 
from heaven's perspective, we are holy and blameless before him. Jesus, right now, your brother is interceding on your behalf, standing as an advocate before the Father, saying, they are holy and blameless. They're with me. They're with me. I got them. Imagine this. If you are a Christian, even though you still sin, even though we still sin, you are holy and blameless before God. Oftentimes, when we talk as Christians, I hear, especially in our circles in this area, I hear a lot of times we talk about ourselves as sinners. And certainly the Bible does speak to, about Christians still as sinners. But you know what? The overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament is that we are saints. We are holy and blameless now because of Jesus. This does not mean we're perfect. See, adopted children are truly our children, but sometimes they still need to learn to fit in the way the family does things, right? So one day when we adopt our child, there's going to be times where that child is going to revert back to previous behavior, not going to act like a choy, and I'm going to have to come around this son or this daughter and say, hey, hey, we don't do that here, right? That, that child is, is still very much truly a choy, truly my child, but they're, they're reverting back to their previous family, their previous lifestyle. Are you, are you guys tracking me? You're following with me? And, and so the same thing for the Christian. Even though we are truly adopted, sometimes we, we revert back to the previous master. We revert back to living like slaves of sin. We revert back to living like we're, our father is, is, is the father Satan in Ephesians chapter 2. Children of wrath. But true adopted children eventually become like the father. More and more look like the father. But if you're discouraged because you're like, Sam, I am trying and I, I'm not as godly as I want to be. I'm not like Jesus as I want to be. This is so hard. Imagine this. Becoming more like Jesus, becoming conformed is kind of like a yo-yo. It's like a yo-yo going up steps. And as you're going up this vertical steep step and walking up and with this yo-yo, the yo-yo is going up and down, and there's times where it goes really low, and it looks really bad, but eventually goes back up. And over time, you're going upward, and there's momentum. And so if you're wondering, am I truly a son? Am I truly adopted? Here's the question. Over the course of seasons, is there evidence that there is growth in your life, that you are becoming more like Jesus. You may take steps back, but overall, do you, do you keep coming back? You may go down low, but are you, are, are you being caught back up because the Father does not let his children go? He's in, he does not let them fall for long. You may trip, but he'll catch you. And so if you're not sure what that looks like, we'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. The third result of our adoption VIP access. VIP access. Because we are holy and blameless before Christ, we now actually have a status and have access to God that's greater than angels. One day at least. Romans 8, 5, 15 through 16. I just want to invite you to turn to that passage. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought us, brought about your adoption to sonship. 
and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is the passage that changed my life. I love this passage. And one thing that the Lord showed me 10 years ago when I first really started thinking about this passage is, I was like, Abba, Father, hmm, Abba, Father, I've read that before. Where did I read that before? And I remembered, oh, Jesus. Jesus says, Abba, Father. So I flip in my Bible, and I wasn't very, didn't know my Bible, so it took me a long time. So I'm just flipping, flipping, flipping. Finally find it. And Jesus is praying in the garden at the darkest time of his hour, and he's crying out, Abba, Father. And I try to, try to find, and I look online, and I look in my back of my Bible. No one else says, Abba, Father, in the Bible but Jesus. So I start to think, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, 16 says that we cry, we cry, Abba, Father, when before the only person who said Abba, Father in Scripture was Jesus. Now I get to say that? Whoa. What in the world? And then I just started doing some study about what Abba, Father is. And, and there's actually a lot of debate. Well, there's a lot of debate on everything in the Bible, right? But there's, there's a lot of debate on what this term Abba, Father means. You know, the best translation I found is dearest Father. Dearest Father. You know, what that does is it, it emphasizes the intimacy and the endearing aspect of our relationship with God, but also holds them up in a respectful way. Dearest Father includes intimacy and respect. And so because of Jesus, our adoption means that we have access to God the way Jesus does. And oh, that I would have be a better orator, a better preacher, that we would actually believe and feel the force of that. Listen, did you hear that? We have access to the Father like Jesus had access to the Father. Thank you. Yes. There are some people that I know who walk with God so intimately that I like when they pray more than someone else prays for me. They're like, man, I think God hears their prayer more, right? They're just like, they walk with God. You know those people? But we have Jesus. Like, we have Jesus interceding for us, and we are able to pray like Jesus prayed to the Father. My, one of my, my favorite praying book is called The Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he has this amazing illustration here that I just love. Let me read it to you. Imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar, reeking of alcohol and body odor, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. As you shuffle toward the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word. Jesus, I come in the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention, bowing low in front of you. Lights come on and the door flies open. You are ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the throne room of the great king who comes running to you and wraps you in his arms. That's the kind of access we have as sons because of what Jesus has done. Fourth result of adoption divine love. And oh, I wish I had a whole sermon series on this one verse. John chapter 17, verse 23. I and them and you and me, this is Jesus praying, so that they, the disciples, Christians, may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Did you catch that? Even as you love me. So in the previous 
blessing of adoption. We have access to God like Jesus, and now we are able to be loved like Jesus is loved. The kind of love, the quality of love the Father has for the Son, that's the kind of love he has for us. And if you knew me better, if you knew my dark thoughts that sometimes plague my mind, and you knew my past, you would say, say, that is blasphemous. This verse is one of the most unbelievable verses. If If there ever was a verse that would cause you to believe, disbelieve the validity of the Bible, it should be a verse like this. And yet, at the same time, if you were to ever wonder if the scriptures were true, and if someone really wrote this, or were just fabricating, you would realize that a human author would probably never write that, because it's too preposterous, it's too insane, that God would so love us the way he loves his perfect son. And I'm just begging, I'm just begging God that this truth would not be numb to us. The fifth result of adoption, new family. God has not just adopted you as an only child to be alone, but he's filled his house with a house full of others. You are now brought into a family. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. We're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So we now have a new identity in Christ and we're adopted, but we're also, we also have a new family in Christ. Now let's go back to who is God again. The second question, who is God? One of the greatest obstacles that people have when they think about this idea that God is a father is the fact that so many of our, of our fathers are pretty crummy. And so when we think about God as a father, we immediately import our experiences, our abuses, our wounds to God the Father and says, well, well, if the God the Father is anything like my father, I want nothing to do with him. In the best case, we have dads who were great but still deeply followed. In the worst case, we had dads that were abusive or absent. And the reality is, I know a lot of the stories in this room, it's the latter that is represented here mostly. Not only, but mostly. And God wants to do something about that. And so what I want to do is I want to compare God the Father with earthly fathers and show how he is the greatest father. One thing to note, I'm going to overlap, and you're going to hear some language that sounds like the Son, Jesus. And what I want to remind you is no person in the Trinity ever does anything completely separate from the other persons of the Trinity. I know that's a little tricky, and I don't have time to unpack that. But if you look at John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who does, is doing the work. So whenever you see an activity of the Father and activity of the Son, there are distinct, but there's so much overlap, okay? So now hear this. Let's compare God the Father to our earthly dads. And I just want to say this. What I'm about to say may cut some of you, may bring up bad memories, and I want you to know I'm not doing that for any other reason because I want God to bring healing. I want the wound to be revealed so God can bring the healing, 
He is not like dads who are too busy for you and are annoyed when you interrupt their work, on t work or while they're watching TV. Our Father is always ready to listen. Indeed, eager to listen to you and be interrupted. He always has time for his kids. He's not like dads who overpromise and underdeliver. Our Father always keeps his promises. He never lies. He's never, ever lied. He always comes true. He is faithful even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. He is not like dads who have emotional swings at the drop of a hat. You never know what you're going to go, you're going to get with them. Is this going to be happy dad or, or, or angry dad today? Our father is always under control. He's steady and unchanging, always feeling rightly for the situation. He's appropriately angry over evil and appropriately happy over good. He's not like the dads who cannot provide enough finances, and sometimes it's because of blowing all their money on their own selfish pleasures and pursuits. Our Father has all the riches in the world and generously shares it all with his kids in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, he gives us his most valuable treasure, his son. And if he did not withhold his son, and he gave us his only son, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? He's not like dads who are cold and do not show affection. Our father is tender and loving and weeps with those who weeps. He rejoices with those who rejoices. He sings over us with loud songs. He understands exactly what you're going through because Jesus has experienced every temptation and trial and yet without sin. And one day when he returns in Revelation 21, he will ultimately wipe away every tear from your eye. He's not like dads who use you to live out their own personal dreams that failed. Our father has zero failed dreams. All of his purposes come to pass. He's not like dads who use you because they feel lonely. Our father is completely satisfied within the Trinity, so he doesn't need you to fulfill his lack. He doesn't use you, but grants you the privilege to join in his great work and join in the love that he has within himself. He's not like dads who speak harsh words and shame their children like, you'll never amount to anything. Our Father speaks life, purpose, and destiny over his children. He roots for us. He gives us identity and security. We don't have to be good enough because he already was good enough for us. He's not like dads who love some siblings more than you and showing favoritism. Our Father has many children, but he does not show any favoritism. His love does not fluctuate based on each child's performance. He's not like dads who forget your birthday or don't know what you're passionate about, who, miss, who misses big games and landmarks and important things in your life. Our Father never misses a thing. He's deeply interested in you, and he actually even knows every hair that's on your head. He's not like dads who may love you but don't really like you. You know that they love you in one sense and care for you, but you feel this sense of displeasure and disappointment coming from them. Our Father not only loves us, but He likes us. He delights in us. He sings over us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and He loves you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. And He loves you still. He's not like dads who preach and instruct good morals, but at home they're secretly hypocrites. 
Our Father does what He says. He doesn't just tell you the way to go. He's a pioneer and goes before us, leading by example and not just word alone. He's not like dads who abuse us emotionally, physically, or even sexually. Our Father actually takes our abuse on Himself by the Romans and the Jews on Calvary. He lays down His life for us. And He never abuses us. He's not like dads who demand that which is impossible to do and lay an impossible burden we cannot bear. Our Father takes away our burdens and then provides that which He requires through the Spirit. He's not like dads who discipline in anger and lash out and enter into vindictive, twisted moods. Our Father only disciplines out of love and is always in control. He's not like dads who abandon their family, either physically or emotionally. Our Father will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, He will never let us go, and when He returns, we will be with Him forever. Amen? Who is like this God? Who is like this Father? No one. And so number four, how should we now live? How should we now live? The objection that I know that may be going in some of your minds is, well, Sam, where is he? He's not here on the earth right now. I need that Father now. I need that hug right now. I need that affirmation now. I need him now. Remember who writes this letter? Who writes this letter? Paul. And where is he writing this from? Prison. If there's anybody who should be able to say, oh, you know, I don't really think this is applicable for me now, but maybe one day, would be Paul because he's in stinking prison as he writes this. And he's worshiping and magnifying God. He's celebrating. Even though he may be in a cell, his heart was in heaven. And so the beauty is, although the realities of the kingdom, the realities of God as our Father won't be fully realized until Jesus returns, we have access to it now in ways, in glimpses. And the more we get it, the more we'll get it now. The more we grasp it, the more we will experience it now. But this is only for Christians. This is only for Christians, for those who have trusted in Jesus and are becoming one with Him. Let me remind you, John chapter 14, verse 6. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to have this Father, you have to go through the Son. And the great news is you don't have to do it on your own. Jesus already made the way. He didn't leave us in our scum and all in our junk. He came down from the mountain. He, he didn't let us try to... Work our way up to him. He came and down and made a way through dying for us. And I know whenever we talk about these things like predestination, a fear that comes up for many minds is this. What if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not one of the elect or predestined? The Bible almost never has us focusing on if you're elect or not, or worrying about who he predestines or not. You know what the Bible emphasizes? 
if you want me, come get me. If you want me, you can have me. Don't worry about if you're elect. If you want me, you can have me. My burden is light. You can have me. I love you. You can have me. I, I read this beautiful illustration, and it's, it's this idea that imagine a house, and on the front of the door, of the front, uh, in the front of the building, there's a giant sign that says this, come to me, all who are weary and burdensome, and I will give you rest. Come to me. And for those who choose that door, say yes to Jesus and walk through that door, as they walk through the threshold of that door and turn around, there's another sign. You know what that sign says? For I predestined you for adoption. See, don't worry about if you're predestined. Just say yes to Jesus. And if you say yes to Jesus, you walk through, you look through, oh, I was predestined. If you want that, you can have him. If you want Christ, you can have him. His offer is out for anyone who would have ears to hear and who would want him. Here's are some implications and action points for us in result of this. And we're going to be wrapping up. Christians, let's play a role in orphan care. Whether you adopt and foster yourself or you help families, the Hassans here, our beloved Hassans, part of our church, they're going to be doing respite care next week for a child. How old? Five. Okay? So respite care is, uh, you, they're, they're basically giving respite for other families that do foster care. So they're not fostering long term, but just for a short time. And we can help them. Or you can do it yourself. And so Joanne and I, come December, we're going to have a conversation again and see if it's time for us to go towards that direction. Christians should be the most passionate about adoption because we have been adopted. Also, you can adopt yourself even if you can have biological children. My good friends, the DeLongs, they were part of the Saturate Field Guide. They're actually adopting, and for there's, and, and far as we know, they can have biological kids. The reason why they're adopting before even having biological ch children is because they want to show the gospel. They want to show that they're choosing and they're wanting this child. And, and, and the, the baby's coming right now. The baby's about to be born. And they're saying, we want you. Even though we could have our quote-unquote own, we want you. And we're going to prioritize you. Isn't that beautiful? I'm not shaming everyone who has biological children because that's me. I have biological children. But I'm saying there's just a beauty in showing the gospel in that. For the fathers out there, there's a handful of you. Every day we give our kids an accurate view of God or an inaccurate view of God. And so, Father, would you help us be like you so that when our kids grow older and they understand that, God, you're a father, that they'd be like, oh, I can get that. I grew up with a dad who was very much like father in heaven, and it makes a lot more sense. And so, God, would you help all the fathers in here be like that? That our kids wouldn't have to make huge leaps of their imagination to understand what God the Father would be like because they've seen it every day in our home. Amen? Help us do that, Lord. I want to challenge you also to meditate on this doctrine this week. When I first heard it, I walked back and forth in my closet. I had a really large closet for some reason. It was a poor neighborhood. I don't know why there was such a large closet in that apartment. I was back and forth, and I said, God, you're my dad? You're my dad. God's my father. And I just tried to repeat it. And I re repeated Romans 8, 15 
uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 16, over and over again. God's my dad. I'm a son. He's my daddy. God's my dad. And I just try to say it in all these different ways. And over time, by the power of the Spirit, it started to remove all these layers of insecurity and father wounds that I have. And I, I just commend to you if, you, if you have deep father wounds like I, I, I had, and I, and I probably have more layers that I don't realize, man, just soak in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 16. Soak in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6. And I just want to say that at the end of this gathering, there's going to be a few of us up here. Uh, Joanna's going to be up here. I'm going to be up here. If you want prayer over any things talked about, or if you're dealing with some trauma or wounds from the past, you want prayer, let's, pr- let's pray for you. Don't, don't suffer on your own. We're here to serve you. And, and, I, I, and I, I want to say this. I, know, I want to create a culture that needing prayer is not weird, but normal. That we'll get to the place where if like nobody, if, if someone repeatedly never needs prayer, we're going to be like, what's wrong with you, man? Why aren't you going up there for prayer? We all need prayer. We all need God. We all need help. And so I pray that we, we create an authentic family, a culture at our church where we're just needy. We're weak. We're real. Our masks are off. We're not trying to impress anyone. And finally, I want us to respond in worship. And Jonathan, if you can come up. We're going to respond in worship, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, the last passage. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul's not commanding worship as much as he's resulting. He's responding. He's he's talking and, and meditating and musing about these truths. And he's just saying, oh, praise God. In this whole section in chapter 1, there's going to be beautiful truth. And it's going to result in a praise from Paul. He can't help himself. And I pray that God would grant to us a greater revelation of these truths. And so we just can't help ourselves but praise God for these. That we wouldn't try to try to make it happen that we just respond. Because God the Father delighted to predestine us for adoption. He delighted to have you. And so we're going to transition now to a time of reflection. And Jonathan's going to play, and there's going to be some reflection points on the screen. And for just a couple minutes, I just encourage you to pray and talk and confess and, and meditate and think. And as God speaks to you, let, let me pray. Father, I love that I could call you Father. Dearest Father, Abba Father, you're so good. Thank you for adopting me. Thank you for adopting many here. And, and I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as Dad, would you reveal yourself right now? Maybe for the first time. And for those who do know you as Father, would you reveal yourself even more of the beauty of what that means of being a child? Anyone who does not know you, God, would you woo them? And they would not be hung over the idea if they're predestined or not, but they would just say, come to, they would just walk and say yes to Jesus. Lord, if there's anything I said that was inaccurate, anything that displeased you, anything that misrepresented you, would you correct me? And no one would have heard it. But Lord, that which is true would it go deep into our souls and bring forth delight and healing and freedom and liberty. And I do pray just even now, even more, healing and liberty for those who are suffering under the bonds of, of wounds from their fathers. Would you heal your people right now? Tenderly meet your people. In Jesus' name, amen.